This is the current federal tax developments for the week of March the 20th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and we're going to talk this week about a few things that happened in tax. First, going to look at a tax court case where a trust that was meant to qualify as a charitable remainder annuity trust was found not to be one and an attempt by the estate to fix the problem was found to be first too late, having happened after the date that it would be allowed to happen where you can fix it in certain conditions, and secondly, not undertaken correctly anyway, didn't use the method that would have to be used. And so we'll look at that, how we got in this position, and also that fix issue. We're going to look at also at a private letter ruling that took a look at whether or not an item for consumption, probably infant formula, I'm guessing, by an infant to reduce the risk of developing a specific condition was all or partially a medical expense. So we'll talk about what they were looking for, what the issue was, and also a little bit about what conditions would have allowed this sort of a, an expense to qualify and why this particular request didn't qualify. And finally, the IRS put out an FAQ this week on whether different types of health expenses qualify as medical expenses. Now, the document obviously was mainly put out for things like health savings accounts, flexible spending accounts, health reimbursement arrangements, and the like. But it also, for the most part, covers the issue of deductible on Schedule A, though, as we all know, for the most part, because of the 7.5% of adjusted gross income limitation, the fact that few people can itemize these days, that the Schedule A issue is probably less important than the specialized medical accounts like the FSA, the HSA, or an employer-sponsored HRA, and when those expenses could qualify for reimbursement under one of those programs. So let's start first with the Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2022-30 in the estate of Block. This decision came down on Monday, March the 13th of 2023. In this case, we're going to talk about a decedent. The decedent, one of the trusts established by the decedent's will, was a trust for the sister of the decedent, or actually named as a sister as an income beneficiary. And this trust was meant to qualify as a charitable remainder annuity trust, or a CRAT. Now, this trust provided for the greater of income or $50,000 each year to be paid to the decedent sister and her, and her husband for life. So basically a second to die payout stream that would go. And once they had both died, then the remaining balance in the account would be transferred to a charity. Now, this is the concept of a charitable remainder trust. And this is the specific annuity version. So this is a what's called a CRAT, usually is a term we're referred to. But a charitable remainder annuity trust. This is one of the ways you can give away a split interest, where you divide the interest between two parties and will generate either an estate tax deduction, which is what was being looked for in this case, or if funded while the uh, donor is alive, it would give rise to an income tax deduction. And this is important because generally, if you try to give in this fashion, we don't get any sort of charitable deduction. You know, we just kind of lose out on that. The CRAT was meant to be a way to allow you to do this. And the CRAT, the alternative charitable remainder trust is called a CRUT, a charitable remainder unit trust. 
A very similar issue, though not really covered here, is a charitable gift annuity, which is more of an income tax planning issue. So we can get a little more into that. But basically, again, the concept is we set up this trust, we transfer, let's say, in this case, about $800,000 into the trust. And then we compute the discounted value of the interest going to the charity and we get a tax deduction, estate tax in this case, income tax if the donor funds this thing up while they're alive, that is based on that present value. Obviously, we don't know exactly what's going to that charity in the future because it's going to depend on the actual rate of return investment assets inside the trust come up with. We're going to use, though, what the IRS provides standard tables that are based normally on current interest rates that give us a discount for the CRAT or CRUT. And there are a number of rules, but we're going to worry about one key rule of setting up a CRAT here today. And that's going to be that a Chair Remainder Annuity Trust needs to qualify under Section 664. And in this case, we're looking at an area in 664 called 664D1A and B. These are the two key requirements if you're going to have a charitable remainder annuity trust. And as noted, for purposes of this section, which is what we need to qualify under in order to get the deduction, either estate tax or income tax, it is a trust from which a sum certain, key issue here, a specific amount of funds, which can be not less than 5%, nor 50% of the initial net fair market value of the property placed in trust, so what this concept is, our payout can be no less than 5% of the 800000 or 40000 and can be no more than 400000 of the 800000 So we have an annual, and this is a fixed dollar number, right? It is to be paid not less often than annually. It could be paid quarterly, could be paid monthly, but it's got to be paid at least annually to one or more persons, at least one of which is not a charitable organization, and if it's a living if it's an individual, only to an individual who is living at the time of creation of the trust, for a term of years not to exceed in excess of 20 years or the life or lives of such individual or individuals. Okay, this particular trust, we're going to talk about what the issue is here, but this key section, this here is important. And also there can be no other payment than the amounts we described just a second ago that can be paid to any other entity except the charity. So essentially, the non-charitable beneficiaries have to receive a sum certain each year, again, between 5 and 50% of the initial amount put in the trust, and that's all they can receive. There can be no other methodology. Now, as you might guess, this trust, remember, though, had that rule that you could end up with, if higher, the net income of the trust. The sister could end up with that right? So that's where we're going to get into our issue. Now, as I said, in a CRAT, a deduction is allowed for the present value of the remainder interest. In this case, it's estate tax purposes. But I, like I said, if the donor was alive at the time the trust was funded, this would be an income tax issue generally. We'd be looking at that, right? And deductions of the remainder interest are limited to those that come from a qualified charitable remainder trust. And this is for estate tax purposes found at 2055E2 cap A, right? So 2055A gives us the deduction for transfers to charity. And 2055E2 cap A says if you're going to be given a remainder interest in a trust, 
then generally the trust needs to be a qualified charitable remainder trust, right? And this is the case where we talk about under, under that section, you can see here, that essentially it must be a charitable remainder annuity trust or a charitable remainder trust described in 664 or a pooled income fund, which we're not talking about today, but that's described in 642C5. Now today we're only worried about the charitable remainder annuity trust because this is not the other categories. Just briefly to understand a unit trust, which has a lot more options. Uh, generally though, the simplest version of a unit trust would pay a fixed percentage of the value of the trust each year. So every year you'd reset and let's say we're gonna pay out 6% of the value of the trust annually. Well, we would multiply the trust, whatever the trust was valued at as the measurement date times 6% and that would be paid out of the trust. That's called a unit trust. Now unit trusts are allowed to have net income limitations. So you could limit the distribution to no more than net income and you could have what's called a net income makeup limitation. Where let's say the distribution had been limited below that 5% annual value for a number of years because there was no trust accounting income. And so because of that, you could have a trust that when you finally had enough trust accounting income, that you could then have a makeup and catch up for years where you had the number reduced down. There's a lot of planning options there. But all of this complication revolves around a unit trust. Remember, her sister was not getting a unit trust. She was getting a straight payout, which we know will be at least $50,000. In a unit trust, there really is no at least, right? The at least payout, well, I mean, I guess theoretically, uh, there's also no at least in a chair, in an annuity trust. If the trust runs out of money, you'd have it. But let's say in a unit trust, if that trust value went down to $1,000, then you'd get $50, 5% of 1,000. And if it went up to you know, $100 million, then you'd get 5 million. That'd be your distribution each year. But again, all of those complications dealing with trust accounting income do not apply to an annuity trust. An annuity trust is by definition a much simpler structure than what we see here with a charitable remain with a charitable remainder annuity or unit trust. So the annuity trust is the more complicated, is the least complicated factor. Okay, so bottom line, we have a problem here because if you look at this, which by the way the service noticed, right? Um, that's a problem. Okay, we, we, we didn't have it structured this way. Now, there is a special rule found at, for estate tax purposes found at section 2055E3 allows a very limited chance to fix a drafting error of this sort if you notice it timely. Okay. It applies only in certain cases, so it doesn't always apply. The, the differences in the actuarial value have to be small. So we have to have a small enough difference there. And there are various other requirements in that realm. We're going to look at the, one of the key issues, though, is when and how you have to get this change made to the trust document. The change in the trust, trust document must be made in a judicial proceeding. You must go to court. So there's no option here to do it any way other than going to court. And that means you go and you get the trust reformed judicially. And you, know, you can do that. Obviously, clients don't like to do that because it requires getting a hearing, paying for the attorney, uh, going down there, potentially various parties could object because interested parties had to be notified. 
And so essentially it may be an expensive process and one that you probably aren't thrilled with. But the reality is if you discover this problem after the decedent has died, your only fix is to use judicial proceeding. And the other key requirement is that you have to commence the proceeding, not finish, but commence the proceeding no more than 60 days after the due date, including extensions of the estate tax return. So, you know, if your estate tax return was due today, you have 90 days to go to court and get that, see, get that crack fixed. Obviously, you have to realize there's a problem in, with the crack at the very least prior to the 90th day after the extended due date of the return or the due date if you didn't get an extension. So that's obviously a key issue to understand. So that's a relatively short time frame to do it. Okay, now let's talk about what happened in this case. After the IRS exam commenced, so the IRS started examining the estate's return, the co-trustees adopted an amendment to remove the net income reference. As you might expect, our problem here is that the CRAD had to provide for a straight $50,000 payment to the sister, or the sister or her husband, and or her husband. And obviously, the problem is this trust said that number, or if it's greater, the net income. Well, that or if it's greater than net income would make this not a crack. So they went and they adopted an amendment. The theory being that by adopting the amendment, they would be able to fix this problem, prospectively to be able to fix it immediately. However, the tax court noted that, look, the law very specifically says a couple of things. First thing is, it must be a judicial reformation. This is not that. As such, they're not going to let you make this change. Now, probably I would argue the reason Congress went that path, and the court didn't comment much on why Congress forced that, but most likely it's because otherwise this thing may not be enforceable, or the parties could go back and get it, you know, and undo it later. And the real concern, they said, and why the 90-day rule is there, is otherwise there is a concern that various parties might play audit lottery here. That is, you, you would include this provision, you know, whatever provision you want to be able to get money away from the charity into the beneficiary, which would be this structure, or it could be various any other structures, but let, let's assume the goal was to get it to the beneficiary because obviously generally you want the largest uh, deduction for purposes of the charitable contribution. So, you know, we'll probably want to bias to somehow, you know, yeah, we got this nice big contribution by saying we were going to only pay X dollars, maybe just the base 5%, but we want to be able to actually get more money than that to the sister or to our kids or to whatever the group was is going to get this payout that we would just, you know, put these provisions in. And then if the IRS never looked at the issue, you know, you'd basically win the audit lottery. And so they said because of that, they didn't want people kind of, you know, pushing these things in and then seeing if anybody noticed. Congress required that this fix be done uh, within the 90 days of the extended due date. The theory is you need to catch it and notice it by then. And of course, the problem here is that, in fact, the taxpayer's attempt to revise this trust was not done in the correct manner. They simply tried to amend the, amend the trust. The trustee simply tried to amend the trust without getting a judicial uh, blessing for the amendment. 
Now, it does not appear, the court didn't say whether that amendment was allowed under the trust document, where the trustees could amend it, which would be kind of interesting if they could. You know, if there was any party had a right to make this, it doesn't matter. You cannot make this change any way but by getting it judicially reformed. That's the key. And they said the second problem was that they did not create this amendment till we were well past the 90-day period. And that also is one, as I said, the law requires it. Now, we've talked about this here earlier, you know, last year, actually last couple of years. We've talked about a number of cases where charitable contributions got blown for income tax purposes. This one's a state tax because they didn't follow procedures that were set out by Congress in the code. This is important to understand because, remember, when Congress demands something in the code, as we've heard time and time again with these charitable cases over the last two years, there's no such defense as substantial compliance. You have to have absolute compliance with the requirement. So you can't argue because Congress outlined it. The IRS doesn't have the discretion unless Congress specifically provides for it in the law, which they didn't here. And the courts don't have the discretion to say, eh, no harm, no foul. This is not. I realize it's March Madness time. And, you know, you might think, well, no harm, no foul, right? I mean, this really didn't hurt anybody because, in fact, sister never got more than 50 grand. The trust has now been amended. She never will get anything other than 50 grand. So what she's gotten has always been what would have been required had the trust been drafted properly to begin with, right? There was no difference. And in fact, they pointed out that it was virtually impossible given the funding level of the trust for the trust to generate trust accounting income, which normally looks at the relevant state principal and income act to generate more than 50 grand of that, meaning that bottom line, you know, she was always going to get 50. It was wildly unlikely she would ever get more than 50,000. Now, that kind of begs the question, then, why'd you put that in there? <laughs> Which, unfortunately, I'm not sure anybody has a good answer to right now. Uh, you know, we'd have to kind of figure that out. That's obviously a problem here with the drafting as we looked at that. So that was a big problem. Now, they also tried a secondary uh, defense, which was what I just said. Well, okay. Okay, yeah, 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 the document's wrong, and yeah, we didn't get it fixed the way we should have. But in reality, as I just said, sister never has gotten more than 50 grand. She's only gotten 50 grand for the years in question since this first came up. And she never would get more than 50, right? They said, you know, basically they, they were claiming it was just totally impossible for this thing to generate trust accounting income in excess of 50 grand. Now, hopefully you know what I mean by accounting income, right? The IRS calls it consistently accounting income. You'll find that to a trust document, it's just called income. And generally, it's referenced to the state's Principal and Income Act. You know, it's governed by that for the state, you know, whose laws generally govern the trust. The catch there is it can be different in each state. But bottom line, that's the number. Now, if you don't know what that is, hint, it's not taxable income. Right. And, you know, and your software really isn't computing it right if you're just letting it do whatever it does, because it's highly unlikely your software is getting this right. Just fair warning. It's the way it tends to work. So if you've never looked into that, you might want to look into your Principal and Income Act and actually read it 
And if you've never looked at it, you're going to be more than a little shocked about how it works. I'm just, just going to say. It's going to be like, no, this isn't like any accounting you've ever seen. That is correct. It's not like any accounting you've ever seen. And it's not taxable income. Now, what this case, what this case points out is the importance of having an experienced counsel draft the document. This mistake in this document is not one that I would expect competent, uh, experienced counsel that has drafted a number of these documents to make. You know, this is more something that maybe somebody who is dabbling in it, or maybe somebody found something on the internet. You know, let's, let's even, we don't know for sure counsel was involved in drafting this. But in any event, it does not appear that whoever was drafting it was somebody who really should have been drafting this sort of estate planning document, right? It's somebody who didn't really understand the rules. I'm guessing it might have been an attorney who had heard about income limitations being put on or income clauses being put into unit trusts and thought that, oh, well, you always can just say, you know, the payout amount or income of the trust. And it's like, A, that's not even what unit trusts really allow you to do. But B, um, you know, it's also, you know, not just simply absolutely prohibited in a charitable remainder annuity trust. So as I said, it's not a good look to have. But secondly, whenever you are dealing with or whoever is dealing with filing the 706, if there is a document in it that claims to be a charitable remainder trust, somebody needs to vouch and specifically review the document in question, and probably all parties involved should review it, to make sure that the trust document actually complies with all the rules under 664. Because you got one chance to fix it, you know, assuming that the adjustments will be small enough in terms of changes to actuarial values, you're going to have one shot to get it fixed. And if we need to get it fixed, that'll save a lot of time and trouble. In this case, it's pretty clear had they recognized the problem before the return was filed, or even shortly after it was filed, that it would have almost certainly been trivial to get this adjustment. Yes, it would have cost money. Yes, it's probably more money than they wanted to pay. But at this point in time, it simply fouled up. And if you want to get this deduction from your, you know, from the estate, which would be whatever the present value was of that eventual transfer to charity. Um, and again, this is a taxable estate. So we're looking at the state tax rate, tax rates on there. So that percent of that deduction be a decent amount of tax. You'd probably want to get it fixed. And obviously, it's enough tax to justify going to tax court to fight this, which means you ended up in court anyway. So your theory of saving a, saving a trial cost or saving judicial costs, my guess is it costs you way more to go to tax court and fight this case than it would have cost you to go and just get it revised in either way. Of course, obviously, they would have had to try to get it revised on a timely basis, which is something they didn't do. And the other part is realize this is a malpractice situation ready to go. You know, if you were in this situation, you're not going to probably be protected by claiming if you did the 706 that, oh, well, I just assumed the attorney got this right. Uh, like it or not, they're probably going to go after all parties involved in preparing this 706, saying that, well, see, as a court told us, this could have been fixed and this tax totally avoided if you had just done X, Y, Z, right? Had you noticed the problem and had a judicial reformation been started? 
And had we obtained that, we would have basically not had the problem at all. So, you know, be very, very careful just, just assuming somebody did this. I think too often what happens is everybody assumes somebody did it. And then in this case, nothing seems to indicate the IRS had yet raised the issue. My guess is what happened was when it finally got the notice that we're going to be examined, then it went to somebody who actually finally took a look at the documents in question and had one of those, oh, we got a problem moments as they reviewed the document. And they realized they were past the date for a judicial reformation. So they just decided to try to amend the trust document and I guess just kind of hope the service wouldn't notice too much. But as I say, and then they thought, well, maybe it could work. But yeah, always going to be bad. Remember, we, one thing we've learned over the past couple of years, whenever we have a congressional mandated set of steps, and if unless Congress provides an out somewhere for the IRS to you know, say, nope, you don't have to do exactly this, you don't do exactly what's required, you're losing the charitable deduction. So yeah, this one just not going to fly. Okay, next up, we're going to talk about a private letter ruling came out this week. Private letter ruling 2023-11001. This came out on St. Patrick's Day. And this particular ruling looks into what qualifies for medical care for tax deduction and FSA, HSA, and HRA reimbursement purposes. You know, does this qualify? And the key thing to realize is what's considered medical care is governed by Section 213D1. Now, the real big part about this is what we have as A here. Medical care means amounts paid for the diagnosis, cure, mitigation, treatment, or prevention of disease, or for the purpose of affecting any structure or function of the body. Right? Then there are a couple of others for transportation, qualified long-term care services, and for medical insurance. But in this case, we're looking at the first category here. What exactly goes in that? That's the main category, right? You're not paying for an ambulance, right? We're not paying for qualified long-term care services. Um, we're not paying for insurance, right, of these things. We're just paying for straight medical. So in this case, we're looking at a taxpayer who's requesting this ruling. They had purchased, and this ruling, with it being redacted, you're guessing at some of what they're talking about here because, as always happens, they redact things. So they're not saying exactly details here. There are various things the parties requesting the ruling can ask to be redacted. My guess is they probably asked for the name of the product to be redacted. Uh, it's not something really necessary for this. Um, and basically, yeah, we're just not going to know exactly. But in addition to redacting it, they really didn't tell us what the product did except in rather broad terms. Right? But we're going to guess what it probably is. An infant formula seems like the most likely option. Right? This particular product has a specific amount of X. Now, we're not sure what X is, but X. X could be, you know, certain amount of vitamin C. It could be a certain amount of, you know, some specific mineral. It could be a certain amount of some, you know, thing that has some medicinal properties or whatever. But it's got a certain amount of this thing called X. And the taxpayer claims that early introduction of X to the diet reduces the risk of this condition W in the future for the child. So the question becomes, we're buying this product. Let's say it is formula. I'm buying this formula for the child, infant. 
right? I'm buying this formula. It's, you know, it's designed for the entrance. It was recommended by the infant's doctor that the child receive this. Is that considered a deductible medical expense? Now, one thing they pointed out here too, because they asked the, you know, the, the, those applying for the ruling about this, and they said, nope, there's no known current illness caused by W or the imminent probability of one that the child had. So the child's not currently ill, and there's no imminent probability the child will become ill. In a, you know, basically, that, that this illness we're trying to avoid in the future, there's not an imminent probability or an imminent possibility that this is going to occur. So that gets into the treatment. So the question becomes, does it meet the requirements, right? And the letter ruling says, essentially tells us what we already noted, that what is medical care and that whole bit about diagnosis, cure, mitigation, treatment, or prevention of disease or for purposes of affecting the structure or function of the human body. The opinion tells us, or the ruling tells us, the medical expense deduction has historically been construed narrowly, quoting the Atkinson case from 1965. And notes, deduction for medical care have been confined strictly to expenses incurred primarily for the prevention or alleviation of a physical or mental defect or illness. And this is found in Regulation 1.213-1E1II, right? So that's where you're going to find this particular discussion. The question is, does our formula meet this criteria? Well, now we're looking at a food, right? Something like a food. Generally, the cost of special foods do not qualify as a medical expense. In some cases, depending upon professional, the particular facts, if the prescribed food is taken solely for alleviation or treatment of an ailment, is in no way a part of the nutritional needs of the patient, and a statement as to particular facts and as to the food prescribed is submitted by a physician, the cost of such food can be deducted as a medical expense. This is, a, like I said, a revenue ruling going all the way back to 1955. The IRS notes that in this case, this ruling does not support a favorable ruling because the infant did not have an illness and the product has nutritional value apart from its represented benefits in preventing W. That's why I'm thinking it's, it's a formula with something else in it. That would be the obvious thing filling in this role. Now, the situation is not quite as cut and dried as the IRS says here. Because the revenue ruling, while yes, there is case law to back this up in many cases generally. Um, right, you know, there are some cases that have allowed an excess cost deduction if a person is on a special diet specifically for treating an illness, right? And they go back to cases like Neos versus Commissioner and Crawford versus Commissioner to talk about, you know, how this has worked. If we meet the requirements where we have this food stuff, right, that is essentially specially prepared foods that designed to meet a medical condition, only the costs in excess of the ordinary cost of foods that would have been consumed but for the condition is an expense for such medical care. And if you're going to claim that, the taxpayer must be able to prove what the taxpayer spent for the special diet and what would have been spent for the normal food to cover the difference. So let's say this was a special formula. Well, you know, you obviously would then compare it to the cost of comparable formulas that simply didn't have, you know, item that didn't have basically X in it. 
So how much is it costing us to treat W or, a, or, get, or not have W because it's imminent? Then we could claim that as a deduction. And by the way, since most people aren't really claiming medical deductions, what this probably really means is, and I suspect this is what drove this case, can I get this reimbursed from my flexible spending account or my health savings account? Is this a legitimate expense there? Because that's more, far more likely to be relevant in most cases, right? Um, as I noted, the ruling holds that in fact, these amounts are not deductible medical expenses, right? They don't count for that purpose, right? And more to the point is, well, what might change this result? Let's talk about the problems because it's really important to read this ruling carefully and note specifically what they told you was the problem. Well, if either the child actually was suffering from W, the condition, right? So the client, the child was suffering from a specific condition or there was evidence the child was at imminent risk of developing this condition. So let's say one of the, true is, one of the two is there. So actually, they're actually suffering from a medical condition or we feel there is an imminent risk that they are going to develop that condition, that there is reason to believe they are at special risk of developing that condition. It's kind of like, you know, if you've ever been around, you've had a blood clot issue, you know, your doctor likes to put you on blood thinners and not because you currently, I mean, once you get the original clot dissolved, it doesn't matter, but now you're considered at risk of having that recur, so you're treated for that to avoid recurrence. That's kind of the imminent risk of developing this issue that currently you don't have, but you could. But if we had that, you know, we could show an illness was either currently there or some condition was currently in place, or we were at, the child was at great risk of that occurring, and we had evidence of the extra cost of this food over the normal food for the infant we'd otherwise provide, let's say the normal cost of, you know, let's say of a formula, again, without this particular ingredient or this particular item in it, then, then we should get a different result. So it's important to understand how to read that particular part of it. As I said, my guess is this is probably a request was made because somebody was trying to get reimbursed from a flexible spending account. Or maybe, you know, it's one of those things almost sounds like a sponsored ruling. Uh, hey, you, you, you got a kid, right? Yeah. And, and, and your, your kids, you know, do, you know you're, you're getting whatever this kind of supplement, whatever your document, your doctor has suggested they should do that. So I tell you what, why don't we have you ask the IRS? We'll pay for the ruling, but we want this ruling so that we essentially have it as, so, so for our flexible spending account, you know, basically managing the program, we'll have this ruling in our pocket saying, ah, no, can't do that. So if you want to come in and have these special supplements, let's say a special, you know, with special supplements in them, uh, version of the foods, and you're trying to get that reimbursed by the FSA, we'll say, first, we need a diagnosis of an illness. And then secondly, we need you to show me the cost of the foods, you know, the food stuff, whatever it is you're going to be eating uh, in excess of, what would be for ones that didn't, you know, that weren't such a special type of thing, since they're both fulfilling your normal, you know, nutritional needs in addition to whatever this other thing is doing. So that's how you would be able to carry this situation. 
Okay, let's finally talk about it. We're still on medical, too. It's kind of interesting. IRS put this out. I thought it was interesting. It came out the same day. But it's on the IRS's website. They put up a set of frequently asked questions about medical expenses related to nutrition, wellness, and general health. Now, this one is very clear that most of what they're talking about here are questions arising with relation to FSAs, HSAs, HRAs, right? Flexible spending accounts, medical flexible spending accounts, health savings accounts, health reimbursement arrangements with employers. You know, this is where we're going. So the IRS is addressing certain types of expenditures and whether they qualify for medical expenses under Section 213, so deductible under on Schedule A, or for FSA, HSA, or HRA reimbursement. Can we meet the requirements? Now, at the very beginning of this document, and what it is, they have a general quick, you know, some blurbs up front. They explain right away that generally expenses for general health benefits normally don't qualify. And we're going to explain this because we're going to look at the questions they gave and the items and how they determined these things. But just something to make you generally healthy, like let's say you're, you remember the old Popeye cartoons, right? And so you go out and you keep buying tons of spinach because we all know if you eat tons of spinach, right, that, that, that's how you're going to be super healthy, etc. So, okay. Well, just buying tons of spinach uh, is not going to be, the, you know, the extent is that's aiming for a general health benefit. And that usually is not going to be considered a deductible medical expense. While you hope it has a positive impact on your health, um, that kind of general health is not what's considered medical care under the tax law. So the FAQ says medical expenses are the cost of diagnosis, cure, mitigation, treatment, or prevention of disease, and for the purpose of affecting any part or function of the body. That sound familiar? Right. These expenses include payments for legal medical services rendered by physicians, surgeons, dentists, and other medical practitioners. They include the cost of equipment, supply, diagnostic devices needed for these purposes. They also include the cost of medical medicines and drugs that are prescribed by a physician. Right? Medical expenses must be primarily to alleviate or prevent a physical or mental disability or illness. They don't include expenses that are merely beneficial to general health. With that as a backdrop, the IRS starts going through a number of specific situations. And as they often do in this case, they go from like, you know, basically the obvious that's going to qualify to things that become progressively less obvious that they're going to qualify. And you're going to find, of course, that some of those don't qualify as we get down that list. So we're going to start with the first thing is, the first question seems really easy. Uh, you get a dental exam. So you go to your dentist. Is that a medical expense? Can be paid or reimbursed by an HSA, FSA, oh, I forgot the arch or MSAs, or an HRA? And the answer is yes, because the dental exam provides a diagnosis of whether a disease or illness is present. You go to your dentist, right? That specifically is, you know, to take a look, examine your teeth, examine the exam, examine everything, and determine if there is an illness. So the purposes are met for that. Same answer comes back if we talk about your eye exam, right? It provides a diagnosis whether a disease or illness is present, some misfunctioning of, you know, your eyes, right? Your ability to see. So that's the issue. Also, a physical exam, okay? Like I said, th these first three are obvious. I don't think anybody would be shocked about these. 
but why they're explaining these is to tell you why these qualify and this other thing doesn't because immediately somebody can say, well, you know, if, if this qualifies, then this should, and no, there's, there's a difference. So they're setting up the obvious here. So if you go get an annual physical exam, right, your doctor's annual physical exam, you're charged for that, you know, you get a charge for that, and you pay for that, that's a basically a deductible medical expense and a reimbursable expense from the HSA, the FSA, MSA, or HRA, right? Because again, it is, it's looking to diagnose. When we're doing diagnoses, that works. And so all of these qualify under that theory. How about a program to treat a drug-related substance use disorder, a medical expense? Can that be reimbursed? And yes, substance abuse has been ruled to be a disease. And obviously, the drug-related, the basically the program to treat that abuse disorder is considered, therefore, medical care, qualifies in this case. Similarly, if you have an alcohol use disorder and you have a program to treat that, same issue, right? The use of alcohol is just like another substance, let's be honest. And treating that is, you know, that disorder of having substance abuse is considered a treatable disease in this case. And so amounts paid to treat that disease will be deductible. Similarly, for smoking cessation, you know, you're trying to quit smoking, so you end up paying for a program that's also a medical expense. Again, it's treating the condition known as tobacco use disorder, right? Yeah, you're hooked on nicotine, man. And that's kind of where we go. Okay, now let's go a little further afield. How about the cost of therapy? Is that an expense that is a medical expense that we can get reimbursed, you know, that an HSA, an FSA, an MSA, or an HRA could reimburse, and I guess, in, in essence, properly reimburse, or reimburse, we don't have to pay tax on it? And the answer is yes, if the therapy is for treatment of a disease. So if you have a diagnosed mental illness, that's a medical expense. But an amount paid for marital counseling, that's not deductible, right? So in this case, like I said, the answer is a little more subtle. If you have an underlying diagnosed medical illness, then your therapy costs will be deductible. If you are just getting marital counseling, you might think of that as a therapy, and it is of sorts, but, you know, you and your spouse not getting along and hating each other is not considered generally a medical condition unless one or both of you have underlying mental illnesses and then you go treat that, right? And so that's kind of the background. And that's and that, that then to be separate, even divorce goes through fine, you're not going to do it. And obviously the actual payments for the pure marital counseling will generally not be deductible regardless. How about nutritional counseling? Is that a medical expense? And again, this becomes the it depends. And I love it. When the IRS does this, this becomes a yes, but. Only if the nutritional counseling treats a specific disease diagnosed by a physician, such as obesity or diabetes. If it's just general nutritional counseling, that's wellness. You know, you go to somebody who says, oh yeah, you know, you, you need to, you know, you, you should be eating this and this and doing this. It'll make you healthier and better. That's general health conditions. That's not going to be deductible. But let's say you're diagnosed with diabetes and you get counseling for nutritional counseling on getting the proper nutrients and not, you know, and, how, and what things you need to avoid because of the diabetes. That's a separate issue right? Weight loss program, is that a medical expense program? And again, yes, but 
we need a diagnosis of a specific disease, such as diab obesity, diabetes, hypertension, or heart disease. So that does mean I need the doctor to go through, and there is like the BMI indexes that will give a specific definition of when the party is considered obese. And obesity is considered a disease, so a weight loss program to treat that disease is considered okay. However, if you're just trying to, you know, tone down, you know, like reduce down because, you know, you're, you're, you're one of these people who's going to be, you know, you're trying to break into acting in Hollywood and you need to be super thin, you believe, that's not going to qualify, right? That's going to be a different problem. That weight loss would not be a medical expense. And similarly, if, if you were an actor, actress, and, you know, you, you, you bulked up to play a superhero, and now you're done and you want to kind of unbulk up and get rid of that weight you added for whatever, or Brendan Fraser, I guess, added for the whale, uh, you know, you would probably end up that, that reduction program not generally going to be considered a medical expense, I'd say, because that, that was something different. How about gym membership? Is that a medical expense? Now, again, we're getting further and further out. A gym membership can be deductible medical expense, but now we got more conditions. The membership was per, must be purpose, purchased for the sole purpose of affecting a structure or function of the body, such as prescribed plan, physical therapy, treated injuries, or the sole purpose of treating a specific disease diagnosed by the physician, such as obesity, hypertension, or heart disease. Otherwise, a gym membership is for general healthy individuals and is not a medical expense. So the gym membership is where we start getting this issue of it depends. If you're told to go to the gym because you're obese, right, and you need to have more activity, and they put you on a program there, and the doctor prescribes this to treat your obesity, then the gym membership is there. But it's got to be the sole reason you've got it, right? There can't be other reasons for it. So that's also important. Is the cost of exercise for the improvement of general health, such as swimming or dancing lessons, a medical expense can be paid or incurred. Now we're to the straight up nose. No. That exercise, even if recommended by a doctor, that's the key, is for the improvement of general health. So remember, that's a different issue. Exercise programs, that's general health, that won't work. That's the way the IRS looks at that. How about the cost of food or beverages purchased for weight loss or other health reasons a medical expense? And this gets back to the PLR we've got. Yes, but, the iris loves that line, only if, and now we got basically three conditions. The food or beverage doesn't satisfy normal nutritional needs. The food or beverage alleviates or treats an illness. And the need for the food or beverage is substantiated by a physician. In this case, the medical expense is limited, as I told you, from the PLR, to the amount by which the cost of food or beverage exceeds the cost of a product that satisfies normal nutritional needs. If any of those three requirements is not met, this is not a medical expense cannot be reimbursed by these programs, at least not reimbursed tax-free, and cannot be, you know, taken on Schedule A. Now, question 13 is an interesting one because the answer, this is the one point we're going we're gonna to split, where you can use this for the FSA, the HSA, the HRA, right, the MSA, uh, as long as like the FSA allows for it, the HRA allows for it. But this is never going to be deductible 
for personal income tax purposes on Schedule A. And this is the cost of non-prescription over-the-counter drugs and medicines a medical expense can be paid or reimbursed by those various entities. The answer is yes, they can be from this. However, except for the cost of insulin, the cost of a drug that isn't prescribed by a physician is not a medical expense deductible under 213 of the code. However, the cost of those over-the-counter drugs and also menstrual care products may be paid or reimbursed by an HSA, FSA, Archer MSA, or an, a or an HRA. Okay, so this is the special case, right? You can't put these on Schedule A, but you can get them reimbursed by your health savings account, tax-free. So it's important to remember that special category of non-prescription medicines. Now, if you remember a number of years ago, we used to be able to get non-prescription medicines on Schedule A. We lost that a number of years ago and it's never returned. Finally, is the cost of nutritional supplements a medical expense that can be paid or reimbursed by the HSA, FSA, MSA, or HRA? And this is another yes, but. Only if the supplements are recommended by a medical practitioner as treatment for a specific medical condition diagnosed by a physician. Otherwise, the cost of nutritional supplements is not a medical expense. So if your client wants to deduct nutritional supplements, you need to get the letter from the doctor indicating the specific medical condition that has been diagnosed that the doctor has prescribed this treatment program to treat. That's a requirement to show to get that deduction. And if you're running one of these programs to be able to get the reimbursement or at least like with an HSA without it being treated as a, you know, as a distribution, not for medical purposes. So those are all the issues. Well, this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of March the 20th, 2023. Current Federal Tax Developments, as always, is brought to you by Capital Financial Education and by your state society CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and as I've noted, I'm coming here from Phoenix, right? We're here in the desert uh, doing it today. Today got a little bit cooler today. We had a bit of clouds come in, so we had some wind. Not exactly cold by a long shot, but, you know, it cooled off a bit today. So we're in the mid-60s last I checked during the day, which right now this time of year in Phoenix is like, yeah, we're, we're, we really cherish days like that because we're quickly going to run to where there are no days like that. There are no days where the temperature ever gets to the mid-60s on the low end. Ignore the high end. So we'll be looking at that otherwise. Um, I do tend to follow along on the websites, the Connect sites for Arizona. New Jersey, Minnesota, um, Illinois, Washington, and I look into whatever picks up on the Idaho discussion boards. I also, if you want, you can try to send me an email at edzollers at currentfortaxdevelopments.com. Again, it's tax season. I do have a whole big tax practice to deal with. Lots of fun going on there, so won't necessarily be able to quickly respond to anything there. So, you know, as things go, believe it or not, paying clients do have to take precedent over things like that. But, you know, you can always try, I guess, is the way I'd phrase it. And it's more likely I'll have time to ask it if it's a general question where research has already been done. If it's a very, very detailed, specific situation, I'm probably not going to be able to deal with it. Even if you wanted to pay for it, I wouldn't be able to deal with it. I don't have time at this point in time because it's tax season and we're getting in the last month before April 15th. April 18th this year, so have to deal with that, but just for that purpose. Otherwise, we'll see you here next week. We come up with the next week worth of developments in the area of current federal tax developments.